a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back, everybody, to the Say the Damn Score podcast studio here in Beersford, South Dakota. Scenic Beersford, I like to call it. I'm Logan Anderson, sportscaster here in South Dakota. I do small college and high school sports. And right now we are joined by someone who's climbed the ladder a little bit higher than than I have at this point. As Dave Ennett, he is the voice of the Northwestern Wildcats and is also a a mainstay at WGN. And Dave, I just want to first and foremost just appreciate you joining us on the show here and taking a little bit of your time. Logan, great to be with you. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to kind of start with a similar icebreaker on just about every episode. And what I like to do is just what got... When did you know you had the itch to get into sports casting? Well, I think like a lot of people in our business, I had the itch to be in broadcasting when I was a kid. And I didn't know if I would necessarily be in sports casting. Uh, I, I think that was a way that I, I hoped I'd be able to go. But really, I just knew in one form or another, I wanted to be in radio and TV. And I was fortunate in that I was able to uh, make some connections and get some experience doing sports and really gravitated towards that more than anything. But I, I think really, if you'd ask the kids I grew up with, they would tell you that I was the one annoying as it may sound who, when we were playing step ball in the street or uh, just uh, throwing a baseball against the side of the school building and uh, just kind of making up our games as we went along. I was the one doing the play-by-play. And with that, you decided to go to Northwestern Powerhouse Journalism School. What decisions or connections did you make at that time that eventually led you into getting into sports instead of news or uh, some other part of broadcasting? Well, first of all, the funny thing is that uh, I ended up at Northwestern almost, uh, I, I almost didn't end up there. I was all set to uh, go to school. I grew up on the East Coast, and I was all set to go to school at Boston University. And I'd already set my money in. I was, I was all but uh, signed and sealed. And I visited Northwestern. I had applied there, but I really didn't know much about Northwestern. Uh, Northwestern's profile has grown quite a bit over the last 40 plus years uh, from the time that, that I enrolled there. But I went and visited and I just fell in love with the place. And so I changed my mind at the last minute and decided to go to Northwestern. And one of the things that really attracted me to it was the student radio station there, which offered an opportunity to get immediately involved and get some on-air experience right from day one. And when I did that, I was able to to do some games. We did high school basketball, high school football, uh, plus Northwestern football and basketball games. And even though I wasn't necessarily doing those games as a freshman, I was able to be around the environment and do sports casts 
And I realized that was what I really wanted to do. And so what was your first step into getting your professional sportscasting job, your very first one out of school? Well, I actually started while I was at school working uh, in Chicago at WBBM Radio, the CBS all-news station in town. And what happened was, at the time, they hired a handful of Northwestern students to come in and work for... uh, pretty much minimum wage, I think, uh, like uh, evenings and weekends, answering phones, uh, basically an entry-level type job. And I was able to to work my way in to one of those. I went to the radio TV uh, news director of the Illinois News Broadcasters Convention down in Peoria, Illinois, and met the news director. And I'd already sent him some information. And I reminded him that, and he said, uh, yeah, we're going to have something for you. So I got hired uh, part-time at WBBM, and I would work 4 to midnight working in the newsroom there. And I was able to sort of ingratiate myself uh, to the uh, sports director, a gentleman by the name of Brad Palmer, and the managing editor, a guy named Rich King. And Rich... uh, eventually transitioned from managing editor in the newsroom to become a longtime sportscaster in Chicago who just retired last year. But Rich was basically my mentor, uh, guided me along the way as I expanded my sports role at the radio station. And I would do things like uh, I would take a recorder and go out and get sound for the morning sports. And even if I was working as a morning news writer, uh, from 4.30 a.m. to 12.30, uh, I'd go out and cover something the, the night before and uh, help out the sports guys. And, you know, I think they appreciated that, and that kind of helped me because uh, right around the time that I was finishing up at Northwestern, uh, uh, the uh, station acquired the broadcast rights to the Bears, and shortly after that, the White Sox. And so they needed to expand the sports department. And that's where I came in. I was moved from news into sports full time. And so that was really my first full time sports broadcasting job. I was the uh, third guy in the three man sports department at WBBM. How did the news background and having to do that help you as you advanced in your career? Well, I think all news radio, Logan, is a really unique and a very beneficial format, I I think, for somebody in our business. Because uh, you have, first of all, you have constant deadlines, uh, not unlike what social media provides us with today, but you have a a sportscast every half hour at 15 and 45 past, or when there's something breaking, you're going live and you're breaking into whatever programming is on the air, which is usually news, And so you have to learn to think on your feet, to talk on your feet, to uh, not have a whole lot of time to prepare something, uh, but get the story right. And and we also were, I think, uh, pretty good at enterprising stories back in those days and and breaking stories. Uh, It was, uh, for whatever reason, it seemed like there were a lot of opportunities, whether it was trades, whether it was... Uh, an unhappy athlete or coach or something 
we were able to get those stories on the air first. And so I think that was a really good experience in, in just sports journalism for me. And I think it did, I think, I leaned a lot on my journalism background, my news background, because you know, I, I was an overnight news editor there before I went full-time into sports. I worked the news desk uh, from 7 at night to 3 in the morning. Uh, I was doing the, the beat checks uh, for the uh, police departments, doing all the blotter stories and the murders and the fires and all that sort of thing. So it's a basic experience in getting the facts, getting it right, getting it on the air as quickly as you can. And I think that helps you in any aspect of broadcasting. One of the other things that you kind of alluded to a little bit, but you have to go out and find all these sources and you have to build these relationships. And that's how you end up moving up through the sportscasting ladder, so to speak. Anyway, how much does working sources and finding sources help as far as being good at networking? Well, I, I think that you just sort of know who the people are that you need to talk to. And I also think that it was a high-profile enough station that I would call people looking for leads on stories, and they already they knew the station, number one. So that always helps. And then in a lot of cases in this town, they listened to us, so they knew my name even if they had never met me. So I think that always helps because I think that you have some legitimacy. I think that uh, the fact that I worked with guys who were respected in the business, I, I think helped open some doors for me in terms of getting stories, getting people to come on the air with me, and uh, whether it was breaking a story or just to, to comment on something. And ultimately, those people could be beneficial too if you were looking to, uh, to investigate other opportunities in the business. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a guy who made a lot of moves. Uh, I basically have worked for three stations in my career, you know, plus a few freelance jobs. But basically, I've worked for three radio stations and mainly for two of them for most of my career. So I wasn't jumping around looking uh, for the next job, but I was able to 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 find some opportunities along the way within the jobs I held to do things that interested me and to branch out and, and kind of stay diversified, if you will, in the business, which I always felt was kind of important. I never wanted to do one thing. I always wanted to, to kind of keep my hand in a lot of different things because I always felt that that, uh, first of all, I think it makes you more valuable in this business and it also keeps me more interested. How did you have to, were there any skills that they asked you to do at that time when you were doing tons of things and diversifying everything that you mm -hmm. had to learn on the fly that you didn't know? Well, I think the, the main thing, and it's not that I didn't know it, but to me, the key in this business has always been writing. And fortunately, I had a pretty good writing background, uh, not just in school, but I always enjoyed writing. And so my, my first full-time job at CBS was as a news writer. And it was writing a newscast for an all-news radio station where everything is broken down into half-hour segments in morning drive. And you're writing, say, two 
newscasts within each half hour. And you have to do that basically every half hour. So I, I think the first newscast I wrote in the morning was the 5.30 half hour. So I would come in at 4.30, grab a cup of coffee, and the editor would hand me a rundown of stories I would have to write. And then it was up to me to write, uh, write that newscast, get it ready so I could get it to the editor in time for him to put it together to give to the anchors. Well, in my mind, writing for somebody else is tougher than writing for yourself because you know how you speak. You know what your preferences are. And so I think the fact that I was able to do that made it much easier for me when I was on the air because I could already put a story together. I could already cut audio on the fly if I had to. And so I think those were the skills. I tell young reporters, young broadcasters this all the time, that the most important thing you can do to prepare yourself for this business really is writing. Because you know, even if you are not physically writing something down, if you're doing play-by-play, you're basically uh, writing a story that you're telling as you write it. And that's the way I've always looked at it. So I, I would say probably that experience as a news writer was as beneficial as anything for me. So give us the Cliff Notes version from that point on to how you ended up uh, getting to Northwestern, picking up that job and getting to WGN. Well, uh, first of all, I, I ended up staying at BBM for eight years, and I, I was happy there. And I really enjoyed it, loved the job, loved Chicago. And I was offered a job in my hometown of Washington, D.C., as the sports director of a news talk station there, WRC, which was owned by NBC. Uh, the studios were the NBC headquarters in Washington, which is where NBC News also is located, uh, happened to be about, oh, I don't know, maybe three quarters of a mile from where I went to high school. Uh, my It was a chance to go back and work in your hometown, which even though I loved Chicago, I always thought, that would be something really cool. So I ended up accepting that job. I was morning a sports anchor and sports director of that station. I was pretty much a one-man sports department and uh, really enjoyed it for about four weeks. And then I got the word the day the moving van was arriving with my furniture from Chicago that the station was being sold. And as it turned out, I was there on a one-year contract and about six months into it, we were informed that literally the day my contract was expiring at the end of one year, we were all going to be out. And the station was was essentially shutting down, changing ownership, uh, changing formats. So I had some advance warning and I was able to work my contacts back in Chicago. And uh, one of them uh, was at WGN, Chuck Swirsky. Uh, who I'd got to be friends with, who's now the radio voice of the Chicago Bulls. We should mention that he was he was on the last episode of the Say the Damn Score podcast. Uh, oh, no kidding. Well, well, Chuck and I go back a long way. And so I was in touch with Chuck. And I obviously, if you're going to work uh, in this business in Chicago, WGN, uh, those are three magical call letters. And, and so I was in touch with Chuck and 
he and I had gotten to be friends, and I, I think he'd always expressed interest in me working there if things ever worked out that way. Um, I, I really, there was nothing open for me back in my old station, WBBM. So Chuck and I uh, were communicating, and and finally, uh, it happened to be 1984, and the Cubs were on their way to a division championship in the postseason for the first time since 1945, and he needed help. And so they actually brought me out to do a week-long audition and anchoring morning sports on the uh, their legendary morning show hosted by Wally Phillips. And so I did a week there, and everything seemed to go pretty well, and I went back to Washington, and uh, they, they were making a decision. And finally, they called and said, we want you to come out here and join the station. So that was 1984. And uh, so I, I couldn't get out there quickly enough. I, I came out to, to GN and uh, really had a, a wonderful time working sports, anchoring the morning show, uh, working with Chuck on our evening sports show. Uh, in 1985, we got the Bears. So we had the Cubs and the Bears at the time. And of course, 85 turned out to be an unbelievable year for the Chicago Bears. And I was the producer of those Bears broadcasts. So I traveled with the team, worked in the booth alongside uh, Wayne Larrabee, who was hired that year to do the play-by-play, and Dick Butkus and Jim Hart. And then I would also uh, host the uh, the locker room show and do the interviews in the locker room with Mike Ditka and the players. And, and it, was, it was just an unbelievably historic year. And to be a part of it was unbelievable. It was just a, a great opportunity for me. So I did that uh, in uh, starting in 1985. And eventually I was offered the opportunity to be the assistant program director at WGN. And that was kind of taking me in a different direction. Um, but I said, you know, I had at the time I had a young family and I thought it could be a good opportunity for me. And one of the things that came up was the opportunity, our, our program director, actually our general manager at the time, a gentleman by the name of Dan Fabian, uh, wanted to get college football on the station. And he'd always been intrigued by the idea of uh, carrying Northwestern. Uh, GN had carried Notre Dame at various times, I think even Illinois briefly. But uh, at the time, we thought Northwestern was available. So I used my Northwestern contacts and they were on a small station at the time, uh, had a very, uh, their presence was not strong in the market in radio. And so I was able to work out a deal to get the Northwestern football games on WGN and I would do the play by play. So that was all well and good. But at that time, WBBM came to me, offered me the sports director's job and morning drive back at BBM. And so I agonized over that decision because I was finally getting to do a play-by-play job that I'd always wanted to do. And I should back up for one second. I, I also um, had had sort of uh, done a, a few shadow games for GN, and there was an opportunity there for me to potentially to do some play-by-play, either with the Bears because Wayne Larravee was – was doing play-by-play for the Bears. He was doing, I think, Bulls. He was doing some network stuff. And so he really needed a backup at the time. And I also filled in briefly 
on Cubs games on radio. So, you know, there was a lot kind of holding me to GN, but ultimately I took the job at WBBM. Now, fast forward, this is 1988, two years later, I get a call and we're carrying Notre Dame football at BBM, by the way. And I do a show every week with Lou Holtz and uh, we, we do some other uh, ancillary programming around Notre Dame. I get a call from the company that owns the rights to Northwestern now. And they tell me that WGN has dropped them Would WBBM pick them up. So um, I went to my bosses and presented an idea to them where I would do the play-by-play for Northwestern. They liked the idea. I had been doing play-by-play Logan for the arena football league. Now this was the early days of arena football. And I was doing their national TV game of the week. Uh, It was basically a Friday or Saturday night game every weekend during the summer. And they would fly me to wherever they were playing, usually Detroit or Denver or sometimes Albany or wherever uh, they were carrying the game that week. So I had a play-by-play tape that I was able to present to my bosses and to Northwestern, and they thought that uh, this would be a good fit. And that's so that's how it started. That was 1990, and it was going to be a one-year experiment. And here we are in 2017, and I think, uh, what, this will be like my 28th year. So I guess, uh, I guess it worked out for everybody. So covering Northwestern now for 27 years and counting, there was a lot of rough years in there for the Wildcats. They weren't always the, the team that they are now, where they're pretty respectable year in and year out. It could be difficult covering teams that aren't very good on a consistent basis and keeping that energy high and keeping the broadcast entertaining. What would your tips to uh, younger broadcasters be on that facet? Preparation, preparation and, and energy. Those two words. And those were two things that I always tried to bring to it. And you're right, because my first year, they were coming off an 0-11 season when I started in 1990. And the very first game I did they hosted Duke, and they had the lead very late. And I think Duke scored a touchdown uh, with about, I'd say, less than 40 seconds to go to win the game. And so I don't know if that was maybe preparing me for what was to come because there were some rough times. But I always had enough material that even if the game got out of hand, I had anecdotes and I had stories and I had notes that I had taken that that I had something to fall back on and I would try to make it as interesting as possible. The guy who did the games with me in those days was a fellow by the name of Brian Davis, who's been the TV voice of the Oklahoma City Thunder for many years and has been a good friend of mine for about uh, over 40 years. And uh, and so Brian and I went back a long ways to our student days at Northwestern. And so we never had trouble really coming up with stories, history, a a footnote here and there to try to throw in a historic tidbit. Um, But I always had more information than I needed. I always felt that was the key. And the other thing was if if you're doing a game where it's 35 nothing and your team's down at halftime, uh, you don't want people tuning in and have it sound like you're covering a funeral. I mean, you have to have some energy and you have 
Now, now the one thing I've kind of learned is you also don't want people tuning in and not knowing uh, which team is winning or losing. You don't want to be too upbeat when the team you're covering is down by 35 or 40 points. And I think I, I learned that early in my career, too. You can overdo the energy and the enthusiasm the wrong way. So with that in mind, when you're covering a team that has not been very good for a long time, and then all of a sudden gets good, for example, the 1995 year when Northwestern went to the Rose Bowl, or this last year when they finally made the NCAA tournament, does that make it a little bit more of a special experience as a broadcaster? Obviously, you don't have anything to do with the result, but you still feel a little bit of a part of it to a degree. Does that make it that much more rewarding to have stuck it out for that long? Oh, there's no question about it. And, you know, I think I really felt that, Logan, this year with basketball because I've been around it for so long and and you gain an appreciation for how much it meant to so many people. In 1995, even though I'd been around Northwestern for over 20 years, I'd been doing the games for six. And and so even though that's still a reasonable reasonably long amount of time to be doing something um and it it was so stunning and so dramatic and and such a great story to be able to tell uh, it it was still something that sometimes i wish i could go back and relive it and know what i knew what i know now wish i'd known it then um but but with basketball i kind of had that feeling that I, i did know exactly what the history was i knew the whole exactly what it meant to so many people. And yet at the same time, I would be surprised because people would reach out to me and say, you know, I was listening to you the other night. I was thinking back to my student days or I've, I've followed Northwestern all these years. And this is so cool to see what's happening to them. And he really appreciate uh, the fact that, that you get to tell a story that means so much to so many people. And that kind of hit home for me this year with the, the basketball story. Uh, the 1995 football season and this past basketball season were my two favorite seasons in each of those sports for obvious reasons, because um, the 95 season, uh, they were the story in college football that year. I mean, nobody outside the program, and, and I would argue that even people within the program didn't see anything like like that coming, where they go 8-0 in the Big Ten, they open up with a win at Notre Dame, where they were uh, nearly 30-point underdogs, I believe, and, uh, and and then proceed to win at Michigan and beat uh, a Penn State team that had gone unbeaten the year before and, and on and on and go to the Rose Bowl and, and become not only a story in sports, but a, a big news story that year. So that was, that, that was really a remarkable thing to witness. And this year... You know, just the way they made the tournament and, and the way they came up with the big wins and, and then they were kind of teetering at the end and then came up with that, that great play to beat Michigan that ended up getting them in the finals for an SB award and all that. I mean, you know, it's, it's just a really uh, something I'll never forget, the emotion that was in the building for that game. So with that in mind, we talked about covering a team that's not very good and now you kind of mentioned something else i want to touch on when you were notre dame was favored by 30 plus points 
and you come up with the big victory. Certainly you want a lot of that energy and emotion to come out on the air, but at the same time, you don't want it to be over the top. Do you have to plan that out in advance, or is that something that you handle with experience to make sure you don't become a caricature uh, on the Sports Center's uh, not top ten <laughs> calls? I, you know, and that's happened to me a few times. There's no question, and I think I have, I have learned that. I, I have, and and I will tell you, I was over the top in '95 when they beat Notre Dame. I mean, I, I think yeah. You have to kind of know your audience, but but then again, you're on a fifty thousand watt station, and and now these days, but people can listen uh, with with one click of the mouse anywhere in the world. You have to be cognizant of the fact that anybody could be listening to you. But yeah, there's no question. I was I was that day in South Bend uh, when when we realized that the uh, the time the the play clock. Uh, was no longer a factor, and they didn't have to snap the ball at the end of that game. Uh, yeah, we we had the coaches in the booth next to us. They're pounding on the wall and going crazy, and it's hard not to get caught up in that moment, and I think we did. But the only thing that I would say about that is everybody in Chicago who wasn't a Notre Dame fan, uh, I, I think, got caught up in that the excitement of that team. So I think I got a pass that year for, for being a little overly excited because uh, they had so many huge wins and, and it was, it was hard, I think for anybody to, to contain their enthusiasm over what they were seeing because it was such a remarkable story. Um, but I think I, I've learned that uh, you have to back off at times and you have to pick your spots and, there were a few moments this past basketball season where I think maybe I was a little bit over the top, but that's going to happen because you know you're not rehearsing these, so you can tell yourself, you know, I'm going to be cooler and calmer next time. But then when the moment happens, you know, you you can get easily caught up in the emotion of the moment, and I don't think there's any harm in that. What people tell me, what they enjoy the most after a broadcast. They'll say, you know, they they thought, wow, you, you sound like you were going crazy at that that call. I said, well, I, I didn't necessarily want to go crazy, but it's I, I'm not going to necessarily hide the enthusiasm when you've been doing something this long and it, you get an opportunity like that. As long as you kind of get the the facts right, the time right, the score right, and that sort of thing, um, you know, you're you probably can only hide your emotions to a certain point. You mentioned something there that's happened to me in the past, and that was with the coaches in the booth next to you banging <laughs> on the wall, and then sometimes you may maybe talking through the wall with some things that shouldn't be heard over the air. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, not anything that... Uh, <laughs> well, if you're, if you're referring to words that, that shouldn't come out over our microphone... Um, it's been something that once in a great while, you know, where it's happened more in basketball, I think, Logan, than uh, than in football. It hasn't really happened as far as the coaches upstairs, uh, although I'm always sort of amused when we we're in a booth, usually on the road, and we have the the home coaches next to us, and they paper the walls of their booth so we can't see in, as if we're going to be 
signaling plays to our coaches, you know, but I, I get it because it's a very competitive business and, and everybody's paranoid. Um, but, but I have been in situations where we're courtside in basketball. This might be what you're referring to where, uh, things get said into a live mic that we would just as soon not get said anywhere near that microphone, including, uh, when we're on the same side as the bench and the coach, uh, present company excluded, but uh, previous coaches turning towards our broadcast location and uttering words that are not fit for broadcast. <laughs> so, you know, you just try to be uh, very uh, diligent in terms of where you put the crowd mic and, and cross your fingers. No, so I got that from experience where I actually had to share a booth with the offensive coordinator and the uh-huh. and the defensive staff because it's a small college limited resources and it was it was an interesting experience we'll leave it I can imagine. I can but imagine. so being in chicago which is a, a really special market and it is number three probably in the country and has a unique vibe unlike anywhere else one of the things that i found interesting is i told you we had chuck on on the last show chuck swarski who is the bulls broadcaster and now you He's from Seattle. You're from D.C., opposite coast. You both had opportunities to leave and stay away from Chicago. You both came back. What is it about that market that just continues to draw people over other very good ones like Seattle and D.C.? Well, first of all, I think it's as good a a sports city as there is in America. Um, And and you, you feel it. I mean, you see it when whether it's the Cubs World Series run last year or the success the Blackhawks have had or the support for the colleges and universities in the area. Um, fans are passionate about their teams. And it's a, it's a still a city where there's a vibrant broadcasting community. And you know, radio has changed in the years I've been in it, but I still feel like there's a good, healthy uh, radio industry going in Chicago. And uh, I've always enjoyed being part of that. And the, the stations here are legendary. They have, uh, I think, a, a great AM band here. The AM band ha- hasn't succeeded or hasn't maintained its strength in all markets like it has here. We have a handful of AM stations that, that are still going strong in, in 2017. And WGN uh, certainly uh, among them, one of the great reputations in the country. And I was fortunate to work for another station here, BBM in the same way. Um, that's part of it. Uh, part of it is it's just a great place to live. I mean, I love living in Chicago. Uh, my wife is, is a Chicagoan. My kids were raised here. Uh, and even though I grew up on the East coast, I've spent most of my life in Chicago. So I, I consider myself much more a Chicagoan than I do, uh, a, a Washingtonian. So I, I think that's probably part of it for me. Uh, but I just I tried uh, working in the sports broadcasting business in Washington. Part of it was it wasn't a good work situation for me, but also there wasn't the passion there because you have so many people from different places converging on that city. And even though there's a major league team and you have all the major sports represented and some some terrific colleges and universities in the area the fans are so divided there. So it's, they've got their own loyalties. So it's, it's just a much different 
feeling than it is in Chicago. And I think that's probably uh, what Chuck would tell you, and that's uh, what I think I probably hang my hat on. Who has the best Chicago-style pizza? <laughs> Everybody's got their favorites. For me, our, our favorite is uh, Lou Malnati's. And they have many locations, including one about uh, 15 minutes from my house. So, it's, uh, But you can make a case for any of them. You can't really go too far wrong. Okay, so I have a clip here. We were talking about versatility earlier in the show. And I found a clip of you showing that versatility on YouTube. And But uh, we're <laughs> going to play this and get your response to where you developed your skills here being able to do this. All right, stop. Collaborate and listen. Ice is back with my brand new invention. Something grabs hold of me tightly. Then I flow that a harpoon daily and nightly. Well, That's all we got to do there. That was just a fun thing I found that I wanted to just start a discussion about what, how did you get roped into reading Vanilla Ice on YouTube? <laughs> well, we do uh, some, uh, I think what you're referring to was the... Uh, the production of the Christmas Carol that we did for WGN radio. Correct. And so we do that every year. Uh, we do a, a Christmas play where we get everybody from the station involved. And uh, honestly, Logan, they had me a script <laughs> and they said, yeah, here's your part. And so I did it and I did it. Uh, I, I wasn't a huge vanilla ice fan. So I think everybody found some, some pleasure in my discomfort with it. But, uh, you know, it's, it is one thing about our station that's unique. I do a lot of things in connection with our morning show, uh, which, which are not strictly sports. Uh, we do, um, we do some different bits where I'm called upon to kind of step out of my sports role and do other things. But I, I used to be very straight laced about doing stuff like that in this business you know, you're, well, I don't want to do anything to damage my credibility or damage my reputation as a sports broadcaster. But, you know, you're only here for a certain length of time. And I got into this business because it was fun. And I always want to look at it that way. I never want to get too kind of high and mighty where I can't have fun with my coworkers and do something on the air that's a little bit different. So, uh I, I'm always ready to jump in on things like that. It's it's really a lot of fun. It's a great way to kind of highlight the holiday season, too. I have a philosophy, and I'd, I'd be interested in your opinion on this, is that take the job very seriously, but don't take yourself seriously. Is that is that how you feel when it comes to stuff like that? Could not agree more. And I, I think, you know, it's one thing in this business that I, I, I think sometimes we lose sight of it. And, and you know this, Logan. It's not an easy business, and I'm not, believe me, I'm not complaining one second. And and I I hear a lot of broadcasters who complain about this or that, or they had to do this, the hours were bad, or, or man, this, this game went too long, or there was a rain delay or whatever. And I'm like, remember when you started in this business, did you really care if you had to sit through a rain delay or or you got home late or it was a long bus ride. It was uncomfortable. I mean, remember that why you got into it, the love you have for it. it it's, sure. They're going to be like any job. You're going to have ups and downs, but 
for the most part, is there anything you would rather be doing than this job? And that's the way I've always looked at it. I've always told my kids, find something you love. And, and then when that alarm goes off at, at 3.20 in the morning every day, as it does for me and has for I don't know how many years now, uh, you, you don't mind getting out of bed because you're going to do something that you love. And that's how I've always looked at it. And I've always felt if I lost that, then that would be uh, the way I'd know it was time to step aside. So doing pre post and producing or doing fill in whatever you happen to be doing at that particular moment for the pro teams in the Chicago market over the last several decades, you've run into a lot of personalities <laughs> and uh, when we have someone who's had access to those personalities like you have, I like to just give the floor to give us a couple fun stories about a couple of them. And the ones that kind of jump out to me, we'll start off with Harry Carey. Give us some Harry Carey stories. He's a titan <laughs> of the business. He's obviously has a kind of a wild personality. And uh, it, I always find it interesting to hear about how those people that I'll never be able to meet were. Well, first of all, I loved Harry. He was really, really good to me when I was starting out in the business. And I did a, a evening, we did an evening talk show on BBM. We carried the White Sox. And so when the baseball strike occurred in, it would have been in, um, and, and I'm thinking 81 or 82, whatever, whatever year that was, uh, suddenly in, what, what we used to do is Harry would come on from Comiskey Park with me I would be in the studio. I was basically an anchor. He'd be at the ballpark, and he'd have a guest there. And so we would go 6.30 to 7. We, we'd do this talk show. But on nights the White Sox weren't playing, we would go uh, 90 minutes. Well, uh, the strike happens. Harry's got a 90-minute show every night with me. And so all of a sudden, Harry's coming into the studio at about 20 minutes after six with Earl Weaver or you name it, some, some baseball hall of famer that he's grabbed, bringing them in the studio. They're going to hang out for 90 minutes. Um, and, and the best part of those shows was the conversations those guys would have. I was kind of a fly on the wall because they would be telling stories during the breaks and off the air. You know, whether he'd come in with Jack Buck when the Cardinals were in town or whatever. And, and and it was just a great history lesson in baseball. And he would send, oh, it's funny, we had an assistant producer and there was a little uh, 24-hour convenience store across the street from the studios. He would, he would send him over there, he'd pull out a 20, which, you know, was more money than any of us had in those days. And He'd send the assistant producer over there to get a, a six pack of Budweiser. <laughs> you know, they'd sit there in the studio and and uh, he and whatever celebrity he brought in there. But that was a man, Logan, who who I think genuinely never lost sight a of the audience and b of of having fun and enjoying the job. And um, he was somebody who who I think was just, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm sure he wasn't always an easy guy. I mean, he was, he was a, a star and there's no question about that, but 
Um, he was he was a guy who just really, really loved the game and loved the business. It was great to be around. What about Mike Ditka and kind of that general 85 Bears team that you touched on earlier? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. I would I would go down and produce the um, uh, get the, the pregame show with Ditka. Dick Butkus would would do the pregame interview. So we get to the stadium and then two hours before kickoff or whatever, 90 minutes, uh, Dick and I would walk down stairs, uh, to, for, so he could do his interview with, with, uh, Mike. And so I remember it was the game at Minnesota in 1985. Uh, that was the Jim McMahon game where McMahon came off the bench and, and through the three touchdown passes, the long pass to Willie Galt and, and rallied the Bears to that win. And the whole week, the whole question had been, what about McMahon? Is he going to play? And so it, it had not been a fun week to be around that team. So we're going down there to see Ditka and, and Dick Butkus. Now, keep in mind, Dick Butkus, probably the toughest, most feared man, right, in, in NFL history, if you're going to find a tough football player, that's the guy. Dick Butkus, as we're going to Mike's office in the Metrodome, he's like, we're outside the office, and Dick is sitting there at the desk in the small coach's office, and uh, and, and Butkus is like pushing me in first. Like, he wants me to go in and break the ice with Ditka. I mean, this is his former teammate, and and yet even Dick Butkus found Mike Ditka intimidating at that moment. Um, I, I saw both sides of Mike. Uh, he was always good for me to deal with. I I really um, I never had a problem. Well, I mean, once in a while, if if he asked him something that uh, most of the time, if you asked him a fair question, he would answer it. Um, I I never uh, I never really. Had uh, had any issues with him at all? Uh, he was he was good to deal with. Uh, I, I think it was funny. One night the Bears were holding a, a, a scrimmage at Soldier Field uh, before their first preseason game, about a week before their first preseason game, and it was open to the fans. We were doing a live broadcast, and I, for some reason, someone said something to me about that I that I was sounding like uh, some other broadcaster. Um, and and so uh, I go in to interview Dick afterwards, and he says, hey, I want you to do that impression of that other that other guy that you do. And I was like, I wasn't even thinking he had heard the whole exchange on stage about this, <laughs> this impression. It wasn't really an impression, by the way. But, uh, you know, it was just kind of funny. He would catch you off guard sometimes. Uh, but... Uh, you know, there was nobody bigger in Chicago in the 80s than than Mike Ditka. And uh, it was it was really to be around that team with so many personalities. Uh, I believe it's as close as I'll ever come to traveling with the Beatles. I haven't read anything about you directly covering the Bulls during the Jordan and Jackson run, but I'm assuming that you were around them a little bit. Anything from that time? You know, I, I remember interviewing Jordan when he was, I think, a rookie. at a. <laughs> I went to a, 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 some sort of a press event 
for one of his sponsors, and it might have been Nike, might have been Gatorade. And I remember going in there, and I was the only reporter there. I mean, I and maybe I was first or whatever, and he was standing there, and and uh, I would, you know, we we started talking. I did an interview with him, and um, he couldn't have been more friendly. Um, I never really had much. Uh, from that point on, things became so big around that team. And I didn't cover the Bulls on a regular basis. I did their usually would would cover them during the finals. And um, I, I I remember anchoring the rallies and they had their championship rallies every year in Grant Park. Um, but it was a it was a cool time. I happened to live not too far from where they practiced. So every so often. You would be in a store, and all of a sudden, I remember going into a, one of the, a, a store in the neighborhood with my son, who was probably about seven or eight years old at the time. And, and there's Jordan in in the store, and uh, you know he's he's sort of off in the corner on his cell phone. But um, you know, it was just sort of like those guys. I think pretty much uh, would would get sort of left alone because I think uh, people appreciated the fact that they were entitled to a little privacy if they were just out in their neighborhood running errands or whatever. Now I felt that way. I don't know if other people felt that way. One of the other interesting stories that happened a little bit more recently involving your alma mater was when the Northwestern football team decided to unionize and go to court. Yeah. Obviously as a broadcaster, you have to kind of tiptoe that line between uh, party line and journalism. How did you handle that situation that was somewhat controversial? Well, I think that the way you look at that is you, you, you have to, I think at that point, really rely on what the facts of the matter are. And I tried to do that in reporting the story. Uh, at the same time, I had a pretty good idea of, uh, what the lay of the land was at Northwestern. And, and it was to me somewhat ironic because it was a place where they were already doing a lot of the things that the, uh, the players or the leadership of this movement were asking for. And, you know, I, I think that that really they had a lot of support from the university it's just that the the unionization part of it wasn't something that was realistically going to work. And and so, you know, I, I really tried to to stick to the facts, not editorialize too much, try to present the position of the players and try to present the position of the administration. And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of what you have to do in those situations. It's not easy. And, uh, you know, I, I knew guys involved and I knew the players involved. I, I had a lot of respect for uh, Kane Coulter, who had been the quarterback for Northwestern, uh, was was the guy who was sort of the the center of it, and a really, I, I think, a really bright young guy, and he, I, I think, was very well intentioned, and I think that Northwestern was trying to do the right thing, and ultimately, I think they still are. So, yeah, I mean, it's a touchy thing. I don't know if there's a right or wrong in that situation. You just kind of have to feel your way through it. And, and I think people, whatever you say, Logan, people are going to look at you and say, well, well, you're the broadcaster. So you have to be somehow biased one way or the other. And, and I'm like, well, not, 
not really. I said, I think there were good points made by the players. And I think the good part of that whole exercise, I, I mean, it's more than an exercise, but, but the whole situation was that it got the conversation going. And I think it has led to some positive changes in college athletics. And so, it, you know, I think that ultimately, I think what those guys did at Northwestern ultimately is, is going to help the game going forward. So what I like to talk to a lot of the long-term veterans who have been in the business for, for decades like you have is how the preparation process has changed. Obviously, I mean, I'm not super young at 31, but still pretty early in a sportscasting career. You're super young as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but what was it like prepping, you know, when you were coming into the business compared to what it's like prepping now? Well, first of all, uh, first and foremost, there was no Internet. <laughs> and so uh, That's what or if there was, you had a dial-up modem that, you really couldn't afford to spend much time on it because I think, you know, it was running up your phone bill. So um, when when I first started broadcasting Northwestern, just to give you an idea, um, you would get game notes through the mail about the middle of the week from other schools. Uh, everybody would mail out their game notes at the beginning of each week. So you'd have to watch the mail every day for when those arrived. Um, there was a system called, which maybe some of the guys who've been doing this a while might have mentioned to you at some point, it was called Facts on Demand. And uh, do you ever hear of that? I have not. Okay, so what you would do is you would sign up. Let's say you wanted game notes from, uh, let's say Northwestern was playing Michigan that week. So you needed the game notes for both schools as soon as you could get them Well, Northwestern. I mean, I would get them because I'd be there. So they would, I would get a hard copy of them and the stats and everything, but for the opponent to get their stats, you couldn't just log on to a computer to get updated stats. So you signed up for the service and I think it, I think it cost uh, 35 bucks or I, I don't even remember what it cost. But basically, you would uh, sign up and then you would punch in on the fax machine. And how many people have fax machines these days that aren't just a, a variation of their, their printer? I mean, but you had a, a dedicated fax machine. You would dial a number and then you could put in a code for which school's notes you needed. And those would be faxed back to you at that moment. So I know it sounds crazy, but that's how you got game notes when I started out or the Big Ten weekly stats. Um, it, it was it was a different world. And uh, the the other part of that was that if you went to a practice, chances are there was uh, there was not much electronic media there. There would be the the print writers would be there. There's nobody writing blogs or covering it for websites so it was a much different uh, reporting core back then than it than it is now but i would say the the biggest difference is that just the technology has made the prep so easy by the time a game is over i come home on a saturday night uh, i've got the box score from that day i can print out 
the box, uh, the, the opponent's box score. I can print out updated stats for both. Uh, I can probably the next, I get the NCAA stats updated. Uh, I can get the game notes probably the next day. I can get all the clips from both teams and, and all of the, there's so much information. It's almost information overload. Uh, you know, it's just, it's great. There's so much information at, at your fingertips now that you didn't have when I started this 27 years ago. And it's, believe me, it, it, it makes the job much, much easier. How many times did it happen where the fax service would not work or not get something to you on time and the game notes didn't show up and you had to go in, go into a situation blind and still put on a good broadcast? Well, one way or the other, I always got them, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's no question. It was, it was hard to get, say, if you were, if the opponent was a, a Michigan, they've always, for instance, been good about sending a, an envelope full of newspaper clips and, and getting you all the information from their local media. Um, and you know, in those situations, Generally, you could call the school and they could send something to you very quickly. But, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, I, I think that probably did happen. I, I've always tried to rely not solely on statistics, so I don't mean to give that impression. Um, but the other thing was, you know, one area in which there's been a big change is media guides. The media guides that they used to give us would be four or 500 pages, it seemed like, for some of the big schools. So I, I swear my back would hurt by the end of a weekend on the road, carrying around these, these huge guides. But I would go through the bios of all of the players who figured to play in the game and look for interesting anecdotes and any kind of notes. At some point you realize that just about everybody playing at the division one level was an all area player, all league, all conference, set school records, set state records. And so you start to be more selective in the information you choose. But yeah, I mean, it, believe me, it could be a challenge because there, there's no question that happened to me once or twice. At the same point, the technology has changed. Having to constantly learn new equipment and learn social media, I'm sure, which is a pretty big part of just about any sportscasting job anymore. How had that? How did that process work for you? Uh, I've always been okay in that area. Um, now I, I was probably I didn't jump right into social media, uh, and and I part of that was as as the father of a couple millennials that uh, they were like not real excited to have me on Facebook. And so that took a while till I, I kind of wore them down. And uh, as far as Twitter, you know, I, I'm I'm on Twitter, and and certainly during the season, I'm on it more. I'm 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 always looking at Twitter, but if I want to sit down and watch a game, I'm not constantly posting on Twitter because I I will if there's something that really strikes me and I want to make an observation. But sometimes I just want to sit and watch and uh, not have to feel like every few seconds I have to post something. And uh, 
I probably could increase my social media presence if I did that more, but you know, that's just, uh, and, and maybe I will at some point, but, um, there's no question that that's changed the business. And it's also changed the way that people consume games. And I, it's funny. I had this conversation. I was on a panel discussion in a class at Northwestern that uh, was taught by our athletic director, Jim Phillips. And I, and I brought up in the class and I got asked pretty much the same question. I said, you know, one of the things that baffles me is why I'm broadcasting the game on radio and yet Northwestern is live tweeting the game. It seems to me that, that we're kind of competing with ourselves. Why are, uh, why are people getting the information via Twitter when they could be tuning in to the radio and listening to our broadcast or listening to the stream. And, uh, you know, I've come to realize that I, I guess people do both or more than that. They, they not only are following, uh, the, the Twitter feed on a game, but they're also following it on a uh, different social media and watching the TV and listening on radio. So, I, I just think there's this insatiable appetite now uh, for information about any sport, any game, any time, and uh, we're part of that. Knowing that a lot of information is available on Twitter, on social media, and knowing that a lot of the, I guess, what do you make sure to find that they can't get there so that they have to listen to your radio broadcast? Well, first of all, I think I have access that uh, not everybody's going to have um, because of my relationship with Northwestern and my relationship with the coaches there who've uh, been you know, really receptive to me and they have helped me out. Uh, I mean, I, Pat Fitzgerald, I, I covered him when he was a player, covered him when he was assistant coach. Uh, I've known him for whatever it's been now, over 20 years. And, and so he'll share information with me that I, I won't, I won't betray a confidence. Don't get me wrong, but I think he trusts me and he knows that I'm, I'm only going to use something that's, um, that, that he's telling me because it's intended for use on the air. And, uh, so, you know, I think I do have access to information that might not be available. Uh, in, in some of those other places. And, uh, you know, I, and I also think there is something to be said for experience. And I think that uh, I have watched Northwestern games and it's, I think it's going back to my freshman year at Northwestern. You're talking 44 years that I've been following Northwestern football. Uh, maybe I didn't follow every game as closely uh, back uh, 30, 40 years ago, but uh, certainly, I can I have pretty good recall of just about every game I've broadcast uh, with maybe a, if I'm given a hint here or there. So there are things that I can pull up in historical perspective that I think I can offer our audience that uh, somebody who's tweeting, uh, who's following the game might have the 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 basics correct, but but just might not have the same perspective. That recall that you mentioned that you have where you can look back to every game over the last 27 years and with a little bit of a, a 
a hint or a tip you think you can remember it is that something that comes naturally to you or do you have to is that something you've developed over time i think it's something that i've developed um i i think you know i can't always remember where i put my wallet or my car keys but you know i can it's funny we'll have a game and i'll remember a play i'll, I'll see a play and i'll, I'll think that's very similar to a play in a game in 1997 uh, or, or something, some event, something will happen. Um, or, or I can recall specific circumstances of a game and I, you know, I don't always get it exactly right, but for instance, uh, there'll be a historical note about maybe a, a player's about to break a record and, I'll think back to the player whose record he's about to break and remember something significant he did. And I just think that's from being around it and getting pretty much going through the preparation. And part of my preparation is repetition and, and, you know, I'll, I'll go through and, and, make certain notes by hand every week, even though I could print them out on my desktop. But sometimes I like to write them out just because it helps commit things to memory. And, and they're just certain players and certain events that will, I'll always kind of go back to that, you know, something will happen. And I'll say, well, that kind of reminds me of this moment and in a game. And, you know, sometimes it'll, it'll surprise me that I'll just, I'll remember stuff pretty clearly where I was or, or, or what were the circumstances of a specific game? Um, a game in 1995 where it snowed the morning of the game and sport, uh, a college game day was at Northwestern and they had to move to the lobby of the basketball arena uh, because uh, there was too much snow. And later on in that game, uh, there was uh, Iowa got a, I think a 14 to three lead and then Northwestern came back to win. I mean, just weird things that I'll remember about specific days along the way. And I, I just think it is from doing it for a while and, and you do kind of gain some perspective. So one of the things I like to ask everyone who comes on the show is, is to ask you about some of your, what I like to call broadcast horror stories over your career, where something went horribly wrong. Your broadcast situation was awful a coach uh, was didn't give you any information. Just it could be anything, and I feel like everybody has them, especially when they've done it as long as you. And I just wonder if you had some fun ones you could share. Well, first of all, I go back to my student days. We were doing a high school basketball game in the Chicago suburbs on a Friday evening, and. Um, I didn't really plan accordingly. It's funny. I watch the student broadcasters now at Northwestern. They have it so much more together than I did. Uh, they know what they're doing. We were kind of uh, feeling our way along back then. And and we're going to this high school. Didn't really know where it was. Remember, there's no GPS, right? So not only do we get there after the game has started, but our broadcast lines are in the middle of the bleachers. So we have to haul our equipment up the steps 
fight our way into this crowd, ask these people to move so we can set up our radio equipment, I think we got on the air for the second half. I don't think it can go much more wrong than that. Uh, a similar thing, we were going to do a game at Iowa City, and, and we piled all the equipment. I had a 1975 Honda Civic. Um, Honda Civic in 1975 looked a little bit like um, those Mini Coopers you see on the road now, or a smart car. It was a little bigger than a smart car. And so we piled our whole crew into my 75 Honda Civic and our equipment at about 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning and headed for Iowa City, which is about a, a three-and-a-half-hour, almost a four-hour drive. Get there. We didn't really know how to get to Kinnick Stadium in Iowa City. And we're, we're literally stopping people and asking for directions. Uh, and again, uh, find a place to park get up to the booth and get our equipment set up literally in time to turn the mic on and go on the air. So I had, I seem to have a lot of those back in my college days. Um, haven't had as many of those. I, I have that nightmare, Logan. I don't know if anyone's ever uh, mentioned this to you, but I, I've had this dream where a game is being played and I am trying to get into the stadium and I'm in my car outside the stadium and the game is kicked off. And of course I wake up in a cold sweat. I, I can't tell you how many broadcasters have told me over the years that they've had variations of that same dream. So, you know, fortunately I've never actually had it happen to me. I have had probably the closest thing was we were doing a tournament in Puerto Rico and it was in uh, Carolina, uh, Puerto Rico, outside San Juan, uh, one of those holiday tournaments. And it's in this rather small gym. And, and the way those generally work, you, you play when the, the game ahead of you is over. There's usually an allotted time till your game is ready to tip. Well, we get in the bus in the hotel and... All of a sudden, we're stuck in absolute gridlock in San Juan trying to get to the gym for the game. Now, the station back in Chicago, they have they have it scheduled at 145 Central Time. They're coming to us. But we weren't going to be there, and I don't think we had a cell phone to tell them that we weren't going to be there. So finally, we get to the arena, and my engineer is setting up, and he gets a a phone. He calls the station and says, we just got here. We're not quite ready. And fortunately with a news talk format, they're able to, to keep going until we're ready to go. But, uh, you know, that does, especially on those holiday tournaments in far flung locations, that does happen once in a while. When you have a day off or a bye week and you can just sit down and enjoy somebody else's broadcast, who are some of your favorite people to listen to both on maybe a prominent level and maybe some under-the-radar local people from your area? Well, first of all, I was always a big Brent Musburger fan. Uh, not because he's a Northwestern guy, but because when I was in school, Brent was the one of the local sports anchors in Chicago. And so, and he, he left WBBM uh, just about a month before I went to work there. And he had kind of 
laid the groundwork for a lot of the things we continued to do there. And so I was always a fan of his work. He would come in to tape his network radio show for CBS when he was coming through town. And so I would get a chance to kind of visit with him and, and kibitz a little bit. And, and eventually, uh, I, I ended up filling in for him on a regular basis on his, his evening network show on CBS radio. So that was always a thrill for me, but I always enjoyed hearing him do a game and, um, you know, he, he ended up doing some of the, the big games we had in 2000, the, the 54 51 game with Michigan. And, uh, so I, I've always been a fan of his work locally. Some of my colleagues in the big 10 and, and one of the nice things is that with uh, Sirius XM, I'm, I'm able on, on a bye week or when we have a late kickoff or a night game to listen to those guys, uh, Matt LaPay at Wisconsin, who's a, a buddy of mine, I think does an excellent job. Um, really, all the guys in the Big Ten, uh, Paul Keels at Ohio State, Gary Dolphin at Iowa, uh, Mike Grimm at Minnesota, um, those those guys, all, all been good friends of mine, Brian Barnhart at Illinois. So, you know, usually I'm tuning in to one of them if, if their team is playing uh, on the, the time. I probably left a few guys out, but those are some that come to mind. And then, you know, here in Chicago, we're really fortunate. I worked for many years with Pat Hughes, uh, the voice of the Cubs, and, and Pat's as good as they come in baseball, I believe, uh, and Len Casper on the TV side. And, and then Chuck, you know, you mentioned Chuck Swirsky. I worked with him forever. And John Weideman, who does the Blackhawks games on radio for WGN, uh, is, I think, as thorough a uh, hockey broadcaster as there is. So I'm really blessed to have a lot of uh, tremendous broadcast talent, you know, just at a, a click away. Uh, not that I guess we we all don't these days, but uh, here in Chicago, it's pretty easy to access those guys. What do you do to this day to continue to become better as a broadcaster? I think it's doing the things that I've always tried to do. Stay informed, uh, prepare uh, never take anything for granted. And I really don't, um, I don't think I work any, um, any less than I did when I was starting out. I think I work just as hard, if not harder now, um, because I think you have to, because the business has evolved that way. Um, I, I just try to stay on top of as much as I can. And, um, and I listen to my tapes, Logan, I, I, Every week after a football game, I grab a CD of the game when I come in on Monday and, you know, usually takes me a few trips back and forth home to work to, to get through the game. But um, I listen to them and I listen to things. And every week, and this has gone on for 28 years, every week I hear something that either I, I it was a slip of the tongue I referred to the wrong team just, just in the heat of the moment or, or I, I just I, I said something and wished I said it a different way. And I make a note to myself next time, say it this way. Whether it was a word I wished I'd used or a description I wished I'd used, um, I always find things that I can improve upon. And I always try to do that. And I listen to other broadcasters and I try to find just, just I, it's not stealing. I, you know, it's, it's, it's more finding things and I'm not talking catchphrases. 
but finding ways to say things that that I think can improve my broadcast. I've talked to a couple kind of local area broadcasters who are who are hanging up the headset this year, and I know you are one year into, I believe, a four-year contract, if I'm correct. But obviously, you're probably done. Had more of you have less left than what you've had. I think we're safe to uh, to say that. Do you plan for that? Do you think you'll know when it's time to hang it up? How do you go about uh, planning for that eventuality? Well, I, I do think that I will know when the when the time is right. Uh, right now, yes, you're right. I, I completed one year. I have three years remaining. That'll take me to um, the uh, dawn of the the 2020 football season. So we'll see what happens. Uh, it's concurrent with the station's contract with Northwestern. Uh, I, 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 as long as I feel good and I, I'm somebody who really works to, to stay healthy and, and I'm, I'm as, um, people will tell you, I mean, I'm in the gym every day. I, I, um, I've always sort of been a fitness fanatic probably over the top sometimes so I, I try to stay healthy the one thing you you really can't control is you know eyesight I mean I I wear glasses I I hope that my my sight holds because I think that would be a, a detriment um, but but so far so good you know and and I think I will know uh, Logan I I really at this point as long as somebody's going to give me the opportunity to continue. Uh, my intention is to continue. And, and, uh, I don't want to be the guy who has to be told that it's time. I, I want to be the, the one to make that decision, uh, on my own. But, uh, I thankfully knock on wood, I I'm, I'm hoping that that's still a number of years away. You know, you touched on something with talking about being a fitness, uh, junkie. And I could tell you, I mean, I was a former college athlete. I used to be in decent shape, and I find that broadcasting at the level that I do, where there's a lot of long bus rides and you're doing a sales job during the day, uh, working through lunch so you can get to your prep done into the bus on time, and then going home, you're eating Little Caesars pizza and McDonald's. I always gain a lot of mm -hmm. weight during the sports season. Has that ever been an issue for you? And what have you done to kind of overcome it and make fitness a priority? It, it has not been an issue. I make sure on on the road, uh, day of the game, even if it's an early game, if, if it's an 11 o'clock game, means we're leaving the hotel about 8.30 in the morning. Sometimes I'll get up and, and get in the hotel gym or go for a, a short jog if it's light out uh, in the morning. Or, or even do something in my room just to, you know, whether it's stretching or whatever. Uh, for basketball, for, you know, a night game, I'll make sure that uh, that I get a workout in that, that day. And, you know, usually I'll go into the gym and I'll see a lot of the traveling party will be in there doing the same thing. I think there's much more of an awareness of that these days than there was when I started out. Uh, I think nutrition is better. I think that, that, uh, the meals they offer us on the road for the team, uh, they have a lot of times they travel a nutritionist. And so I think that the, you have better choices, healthier choices. Uh, even the, the food they'll order 
for a post game after a basketball game. It used to be, I remember they would get little Caesars. Each guy on the bus would grab a pizza as he got on the bus. And uh, now they tend to offer uh, healthier choices than that, thankfully. So I haven't had that problem, but part of that is just, uh, again, it's it's something that I kind of, it, it's part of my life. I've made it part of my life and uh, determined not to fall into that trap because I know that it is something that can, it can sneak up on you pretty quick. So I think I've taken enough of your time for today. We're over an hour and 20 minutes already. So I guess I, the final thing I'd like to just uh, give everyone the opportunity, if they wanted to reach out to you, what would be the best way for a listener who wanted to contact you to do so? Uh, first of all, if, um, they could they could reach me. First of all, they could, they could follow me at, at Twitter at Dave Ennett. That's D-A-V-E-E-A-N-E-T. Or... The best way probably is to email me uh, through the radio station, and that would be dennett, that's D-E-A-N-E-T, at WGNRadio.com, and and, uh, I'd love to hear from them. All right, once again, you are listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. We are joined by Dave Ennett, Mr. Cat, the voice of the Northwestern Wildcats and does sports at WGN. And Dave, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your evening. Logan, I've really enjoyed it. I love the name of the podcast. It's something I tell myself all the time, and uh, it's great being with you. Thank you for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Please reach out to the guests that take the time to come on the show. They are a great resource for you, and it's nice to show the guests kind enough to join the show that they are appreciated. Also, please subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, the TuneIn app, or the SayTheDamnScore.com email update list. I'm Logan Anderson. Next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score a little bit more.